our topic this morning on the character of God is that God is forgiving, which really is uh, apropos. There are certain things that, that come together that were intentional and are meant, and certain things that come together because God knew that I'm not smart enough to recognize it. I should have been able to recognize that the first Sunday of the month is communion, and we are talking about God's forgiveness, but I didn't realize that until I walked in this morning and remembered that there was communion. So as we, as we engage with the character of God, taking communion now as a group becomes an expression of what he's done. It doesn't become that, it's already been that. But we're particularly focusing on this attribute of God, his forgiveness. And so as we come to communion, communion here at Bethel is open to anybody who wants to take it, provided that you're a believer in Jesus. Uh, not just a believer in Jesus, but a believer in only Jesus. In only Jesus as your only way for your only chance of forgiveness, for your only chance of life. If you trust him for that, communion's for you. If you don't, Communion is pointless. It's not magical. It's not going to make God like you. It's not going to make God pleased with you. It's not going to make us like you. It's not going to make us pleased with you. Communion is, as we're going to read out of 1 Corinthians, an opportunity for an expression to the people around us that we are proclaiming the forgiveness of Christ in our life, that we know it's true, that we know that that's what we rely on. So if you trust him in that way, if you trust him for forgiveness and as your only means of forgiveness, then this is for you. Procedure-wise, the, the guys will come up in just a moment and they'll pass out the trays and the trays will have two cups, one inside the other, one is juice and another is a piece of bread. So when it comes past, just take both. When it's done, we'll pray, we'll take the bread together, then we'll take the cup together, but you'll take them both out of the tray at the same time. So, gents, if you would join me. We're going to read this passage out of 1 Corinthians, pray, and then hand it out. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for your incredible love and forgiveness, your mercy and grace. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have as undeserving people to trust you, to have our faith in you, to have our life in you, our forgiveness in you. Lord, as we take communion and we eat it and drink it together, may, Lord, our hearts be ever turned toward you. May we recognize that we are proclaiming our united belief in Christ. We do thank you so much for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Father, thank you for the offering of your Son on our behalf so that we don't have to pay the due penalty of our sin. We don't deserve it. We can't repay it. But Lord, we ask that you continue to impress on our hearts the value of what you did. We do love you. Amen. Take and eat. Father, we also thank you for the blood that Christ poured out, the blood that he didn't need to, but that you chose to, the forgiveness that you offered to it, through it. We love you. Amen. Who is God? God is a lot of things. God is forgiving. The only way, though, that we can rightly understand forgiving, that God is forgiving, is that we rightly understand what forgiveness is. I heard in my house not long ago, there's a lot of people, so you'll never know which one it was, Josiah. <laughs> I heard in my house not long ago that a thing happened and he accidentally stepped on his little brother, Elijah. Elijah's little. It's easy to, it's easy to, uh, or no, sorry, Elijah stepped on him. I had this backwards. That was going to make no sense at all. Elijah stepped on him and he has a sore hand and it hurt him. So I told Elijah, I said, tell your brother you're sorry. So Elijah goes, I saw we, and Josiah said, I forgive you. No, don't owe. That is not sweet. If you've seen The Princess Bride, I wanted to say, you keep using this word. But I do not think it means what you think it means. His brother did not need to be forgiven of anything. He accidentally stepped on his hand. It hurt, but there was not a need to forgive. We say these words sometimes. I'm sorry when you bump into somebody, which I understand we mean that as excuse me. But being sorry for something, I can see how that one works. I think there's better ways to put it. But then we say, oh, I forgive you, when you mean that's okay. Those aren't the same. Forgiveness and saying something's okay are different beasts. When there's not a sin, not a, an offense, we do not need to offer forgiveness. And if we do, what we begin to do in our own lives is to denigrate or devalue the forgiveness that we've been given. Because the forgiveness that we've received is a particular and incredible thing. But when forgiveness is just something that's out there that means almost nothing, it's a, it's a phrase that we use without having any thought to it, we begin to devalue what God did for us. So as we look at God's character of being forgiving, you should know that it was intentionally after the characteristics of God being righteous, just, and wrathful towards sin. That wasn't an accident. 
Because in order to understand the forgiveness that God offers us, we have to understand the right wrath that he has toward our sin because of the offense that it is toward him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 connects some dots for us. Ephesians chapter 1 for Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespass or sins according to the riches of his grace forgiveness is is mashed in between two words one is redemption the buying back of something from where it had been it's like the the pain of a ransom and the second is God's glorious grace Forgiveness is tied to those two. Uh, the Greek word is charizomai, and if you know anything about Greek, one of the first words you will learn is charis, which means grace. And from that, we get the extension of grace, charizomai, forgiveness. In order, to, in order to understand who God is in this characteristic, we must hold rightly to what forgiveness is. It's the giving of grace, which is something somebody else does not deserve. As we come later in the sermon and we talk about what it means then for us to be forgiving, we must jettison the idea that forgiveness is something that other people earn. They cannot earn forgiveness. It has to be given Defining grace can be a, or forgiveness can be a bit of a difficult thing because our culture uses it either as a phrase that means nothing, oh, I forgive you when, when they don't care. Or, or sometimes we, we misconstrue it to mean that, oh, I'm going to forgive you, so I need to bring everything back to the way that it had been before. Whatever wrong you've done is going to be ignored, pretended like it didn't even happen, no consequences for it, and so I forgive you, and that means I put myself in your harm's way again. Well, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean putting yourself back in that place, so then what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is willingly, willingly giving up your rightful possession to exact revenge on somebody. They did something wrong. You have the position of being able to exact vengeance on them. But instead, we relinquish that. We relinquish that right so that we can forgive them. We don't hold, we don't hold it over their head. We don't hold them responsible for it in the sense that we're trying to exact payment or vengeance from them in it. We let it go. When we take that picture of forgiveness and tie it together with the picture of grace, then what we are to offer is grace-filled forgiveness. But why? That's a legitimate question. 
the other person sometimes doesn't deserve your forgiveness. So why forgive? Matthew chapter 18. Most well known probably for its verses uh, 15 and on or 15 to 20. But verse 21 says this, Then Peter came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That seems like a legitimate question. How many times do I have to do this? Why would that question come about in verse 21 of Matthew 18? It's because the verses before this are about a brother who offends you and you go to them in order to right the offense over and over and over. And then when they prove that they will not listen, you bring somebody else along with you. And the two of you go over and over and over until they prove that they will not listen. And then you bring the entire church you bring it to the entire church and you deal with it at a whole body level. So then Peter says, so how many times do I have to do that? It seems like a legitimate question. How many times, how, many, how often will my, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That was like a, a lot. Somebody keeps offending you and you go back to them and you forgive them maybe seven times? Uh, traditionally, the idea is this. The Jewish picture was three times. And so Peter doubled that amount and then added one more to it. It is a number of completion. This seven times, uh, that's a lot. And Jesus says, what? I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or another way to read it is seven, 70 times seven times. It's like saying, how much money does that her person have? They have like a gazillion dollars. I don't know how much they have, but there's like a gazillion. That's how many times you are to forgive somebody when they sin against you. But please know, when somebody's personality is not the personality that you like, you don't need to forgive them unless they sin against you, right? I have a terrible sense of humor. McKenna might say that I need to be forgiven for it. I don't think I need to be forgiven. It's just a bad sense of humor. You can't look at somebody's personality and say, oh, you need forgiveness because you didn't do this the way that I would do it. No, you need forgiveness if you go out of your way to try to harm somebody or if you're not thinking about them and you harm them in that sort of way. When you actually sin against them, then forgiveness needs to happen. So how many times? Seven? No, 70 times seven, a gazillion times. That's how many times you are to forgive them. Why? He gives a parable. And in this parable, we are going to see God's justice. We are going to see God's mercy and forgiveness. And we are going to see God's wrath. Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And he began, as he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, which is roughly 20 years worth of wages. 
That's the idea here. That's how much is there. And since he could not pay, obviously, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had as payment to be made. Do you know what that was by the king? Justice. That was the right payment for what he had done. He had borrowed from the king to an extent that he could not pay back. So the king says, then I'm going to sell you off to somebody else and everything that I can get, I'll at least pay that back from what you owe me. That's just. It's not kind. It's not nice, but it's just to a wrongdoing. You're not supposed to borrow more than you can pay back in case you didn't know that. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me and I will pay you back everything. What was the life expectancy of people? This guy had apparently borrowed $20,000 worth of money and his life expectancy is somewhere in the 40 to 45 range. Unless he borrowed all of that in like three years as a servant, He's not going to work enough years to pay back what he owes. It's not possible. But he says, be patient with me. I will figure this out. I will make recompense. I will get it right. I will do what I need to do. So what does the king say? And out of pity for him or mercy, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. No, you can go. You don't have to pay me anything. Why? Because you couldn't possibly do it. And so I am going to forgive you across the board. If the parable ended there, it would be a happy parable. But it doesn't. But, contrasting what the king had just given to him and done to him, but when that same servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was like $50. He went out and found someone who owed him $50. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell on the ground and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will repay you. First of all, is choking him the right response? Is that a just response? Right? The king had a just response of that I'm going to sell you off to somebody else and I'll take what you have. That's, that's just for the wrongdoing. Is choking him the same thing? First of all, no, it's not. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. This one could have paid it back. Given time, he actually could have. So you've got in the first one, a servant who couldn't possibly have paid it back. In the second one, a servant who could have paid it back, but he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, So now, so far, we've seen God's justice. We then saw the forgiveness and mercy that the king gave to this servant. Now we're going to see the wrath for sin. You wicked servant, I forgave all the debt that you owed because you pleaded with me. 
And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now understand this. This does not say if you forgive your brother from your heart, God forgives you. What it says is, if you've been forgiven by the king, the only right response is to forgive others. And if you don't forgive others, then you're showing that you were never forgiven by the king because you didn't actually trust him. We could say words with our mouths that get us nowhere in trusting Jesus. In fact, James 3.10 shows this dichotomy picturing a, a fresh water um, spring and a salt water stream. You, you can't have from the same spring both fresh water and salt water. It's got to be one or the other. And if salt water's there, it's going to be salt water, right? We get this. We know that you can't have both of these together. It has to be one or the other. The servant here tried to show both, tried to show that he could be forgiven and praise the king for it, and then he could be unforgiving, and Jesus says, you can't. You're one or the other. You're either fresh water or salt water. If you mix them, you're just worthless as far as the stream goes. But it doesn't say that your forgiveness stems from your being forgiving. Your, your being forgiving stems from your forgiveness. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 12. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide. Nor will he keep his anger forever. We will see the chiding, the discipline of God. We will see the anger of God at sin, but he will not keep it forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, a glorious statement. God does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as, far as, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do you know how far you have to go east until you start going west? You can't ever get there. So this distance between east and west is infinite. When God removes our sins from us, they are gone. And now we need to take a moment and understand what that means. Because we are supposed to forgive in the same way that he forgives. We're going to see that out of Colossians 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. For Christ also suffered once for sins. For what sins? For all the sins that were to be paid for. We cannot re-sacrifice him. 
We can't make this happen anew. He died once. That's all it took. That's all that was needed because he was perfect. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That's Jesus. Jesus is the high priest. He is holy. He is innocent. He is unstained. He is separated from sinners. He is exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, the others who came before, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. So the high priests in the Old Testament, they needed to offer sacrifice for their own sins so that they would then be in a right place with God to offer sacrifices for everybody else's sins. And Hebrews tells us Jesus doesn't need to do that because he had no personal sins. So then when he died, he died once for all sins to cover them all in a perfect way, not a temporary way. Isaiah chapter 53 is about the suffering servant. Verse 6 says, but he was pierced, or 5 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have everyone turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Of who? Now, we are not a universalist church. What that means is this. We don't say this phrase means that he died for every, sins of every, or every sin of every person who ever lived so that no one's sin ever is counted against them and we all go to heaven. That's what a universalist mindset would say. That's not what we believe. When he talks about the payment of sin for all sin, he's talking about for all of those who believe. That's why we see out of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit when we believed. We see that Christ died for the elect, for the chosen, for those who put their faith in him. Verse 10, yet... And this can be a hard pill to swallow. As we discuss who is God, Isaiah 53.10 can be, if we don't understand it, a hard pill to swallow. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God has put him to grief. Well, that just sounds mean. But who did God crush? His son. And as we understand the Trinity, the Son is the same as the Holy Spirit, who is the same as God the Father. So when it says it was his will to crush him, it was the triune God's will to have Jesus pay the sacrifice. Of that triune God, Jesus was part. It was his own choice to sacrifice himself so that we could have forgiveness in him. 
It was his own will to crush him. And if we don't see it in that way, what we see is meanness. But we don't have meanness out of God. We have forgiveness out of God. This Jesus who chose to have himself be the payment to chose to have himself be the one who paid for sins, right? We already read that he was unblemished in all of this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Be bought back by God. For our sake, he made him. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus, who had never sinned, to take on all the weight of sin, all the wrath of sin, so that we, as people who would put our faith in Jesus, might be the righteousness of God, might be a people who carry his righteousness, the character quality of his righteousness in us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. So that for those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The guarantee of there being no condemnation is that God, for all he, for all intents and purposes with him, has already justified and glorified us who were to be born thousands of years after Jesus died. And then 37 to 39, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Merisms. He uses bookends, things that are on opposite ends of the spectrum and it implies everything in between. There is nothing there that could separate us from his love once he has chosen, called, justified, and glorified us since we have no condemnation left. Why? Because all of my condemnation was thrown on Jesus when he died on the cross and then his life was offered to us when he rose back from the dead. Now, what do we do with that? First of all, we believe it. And if we believe it, it changes us. But how does it change us? It is not enough to just say it will change us and then go on our merry way and hope that it does. There are particulars within Scripture that tell us how his forgiveness changes us. Colossians chapter 3, verse 13 bearing with one another. Well, verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another in love. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. 
That makes sense. How are we supposed to forgive? You ever wondered what our forgiveness is supposed to be like? And some of you know the answer because you're still looking at the screen or at your Bible. Because it answers the question for us, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. I am supposed to forgive you, you, me, and us, each other, in the same manner in which God forgave us, which is how? By taking the right, just penalty that we deserve and putting it on Jesus. Jesus already paid for that other person's sin. You ever thought about it like that? When somebody comes and sins against you, Jesus already took the guilt of that sin before God and died on the cross. So what right have I to try to exact vengeance or payment on somebody else? The sin was already paid for if this is a fellow believer in Jesus. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 says that if anybody's caught in transgression, those who are spiritual are supposed to renew them or restore them rather. Gently. Restore them gently. This isn't a, you done messed up, now I'm angry. It's, you really messed up. So now we want to come alongside you and bring you back to where you're supposed to be. Are there going to be consequences? You bet. Whatever the sin is, there's always consequences to it. James chapter 1 tells us that the only result of sin is death. There's a consequence. Forgiveness does not mean the loss of consequence to sin. It means that we don't hold on to the right to exact that vengeance, that retribution. If we are going to truly be men and women, a church who forgives the way that God forgave. What we need to remember is that every time we forgive, it is in order to, Matthew 18, 15 to 17, restore or win back a brother. The restoration of a relationship. That's our intent with forgiveness. Our intent with forgiveness isn't to allow somebody else to keep hurting us. There are times when the consequences mean people need to be separated from each other, whether that's a marriage or a friendship or a whatever, because they're hurting each other. The only way to reconcile that is to get them both into a place where they're not going to be hurting each other. We don't want to put somebody back in any situation where their harm continues to happen because they're forgiving somebody. And then we have to ask the question because you, I, every one of us, we will hear this, we can agree with this, and then we will walk out those doors and somebody will do something to us and deep in our hearts we will want to exact vengeance on them. So the question really becomes that we have to ask and answer now, do we trust God? Seems like a weird question for me to ask in this moment. Romans 12, 19, we talked about this a bit last week as we looked at the wrath of God, at the justice of God, at the righteous character of God. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do we trust God? Because if we do, then we can leave it to the wrath of God. We can forgive somebody and leave it to the wrath of God for him to deal with the consequences, for him to deal with all of the vengeance, and we can let go of it. Forgiveness is is letting go of your right, letting go of your position to exact payment from somebody else regardless of their sin to you. Fascinatingly, Genesis 39.9 is a story about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And when she comes to him to try to seduce him, he says, how could I possibly sin against God in this way? This lady's married to someone else, and he says the sin would be against God. And if we hold that, we can forgive because their sin was first and more against God than it was against us. Who is God? God is forgiving, so we forgive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the forgiveness that you offer in Christ to us who do not deserve it, to us who can't earn it, we can't buy it, We can never repay it. We ask, Father, that you would be glorified and honored in our hearts as we forgive, as we love, as we follow Christ, as we trust you and believe in you. Cause us, Father, to know you more, to trust you more, to forgive as you've forgiven. We do love you. And it's in Christ's Holy, holy name we pray, amen.